Hello, welcome to River Road Presbyterian Church. This podcast is an audio-only version of Pastor Ray Roberts' weekly sermon. Whether you missed worshiping with us this week, dozed off during the sermon, or are just checking us out for the first time, we welcome you to our River Road family. For those of you who may be new, we would love to have you visit with us. We have two worship services each Sunday, a 9 a.m. informal service and an 11 a.m. traditional worship service that is also live-streamed. You can find that stream, recordings of past services, and learn more about our church and the many ways for you to connect with us at rrpcusa.org. We hope to see you soon. Uh, The sermon for title, I'm preaching on John, the beheading of John the Baptist, and I realized as I was working on this this sermon that I've never preached on this passage before. It's not in any of the lectionaries, uh, because I thought, well, maybe there's some lectionary helps on how to preach this passage, because it was challenging, the beheading of John the Baptist. And uh, it's not in the lectionary, so here it is. And the reason you're getting it today is because although I've been preaching the lectionary the last couple weeks, I I got confused and moving stuff around on the preaching schedule, and I I moved up the sermon that should have been for today, and you heard that in July. So so here we are. Uh, The title of the sermon is The Cowardly Leader. I came up with another title. It's on the on the head of my sermon is called Anatomy of a Murder, but I had other titles that I liked even better. John the Baptist gets a haircut. It went a little too far, didn't it? Or what's on your plate? Anyway. Salome, Herodias' wife, uh, daughter, must have been a cute dish to get a plate like that. Anyway, anyway, all kinds of... I have to usually edit these things out because, yeah, well, you know why. <laughs> uh, Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. At that time, Herod the king heard reports about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He was ra- has been raised from the dead. For this reason, these powers are at work in him. We're going to come back to that verse at the very end. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, He feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist, here on a platter. The king was grieved. And yet out of concern for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. May God bless this reading of Holy Scripture. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray. 
Lord our God, may the same Spirit that inspired the writing of these words inspire us to follow the one who is your living word, even Jesus the Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, do we have any Tom Petty fans here? Any people like Tom Petty? A few people. I think it's just the three of us. Tom Petty has a song, uh, It's Good to Be King. You know the song? Um, it's good to be king if just for a while to be there in velvet and give them a smile. It's good to be king and have your own way. Get a feeling of peace at the end of the day. And when your bulldog barks and your canary sings, you're out there with winners. It's good to be king. Well, I think Tom Petty probably speaks for a lot of people who would like to be king, or if not king, they'd like a step up in their station in life. You know, there's a common educational practice of uh, asking students, you know, what would you do if you were king? If you were king, or if you were the queen, what would you do? And uh, there's a teacher, Joe Paprock, who asked his sixth graders what they would do if they were king or queen, and they, he got these answers. And I think they're pretty thoughtful answers. Answers are, provide homes for the homeless. Make sure all people have warm clothes for winter. Make sure everybody has a family. Take in all the dogs and pounds and shelters. Make sure all kids have presents on Christmas. Do not let kids get bullied. Make sure nobody gets shot. Stop global warming. End all wars. It's a pretty good list, don't you think? Thoughtful list. Thoughtful list from a bunch of sixth graders. Uh, Joe Paprock says he also got these answers. And these may be the more realistic answers of what people would actually do if they were king or queen. I'd make everybody give me all the candy. I'd make every day Christmas. I'd throw a huge pizza party. I would end homework. That's probably closer to what people would actually do, and they actually do do when they are in a position of great power. Of course, the assumption behind the exercise is that if you are a king or a queen, you have absolute power. You can, you can do what you want. You can say what you want. You can make things happen, and there are no consequences. And you're protected from the consequences by your office. You're a queen. You're a king. You, you, no one can stop you. And this will shield you from the blowback you might get if you were actually doing things that people didn't like. But that isn't how it works. Leaders all have power, but they also have constraints placed on them by, I don't know, other centers of power and by constituencies. By the way, if you're a Reformed Protestant Christian, you think uh, divisions separating powers and checks on power are a really, really good thing because you know everybody's a sinner. Anyway, all of this brings us to King Herod. King Herod had constraints. For one thing, he was living under Roman occupation. I know he's the king, but he's still under the Roman occupation, and he's kind of there as the figurehead for the local people, but he, you know, Rome is there, and they don't like what he's doing. Uh, 
he's going to feel it. So he's got constraints. But he also had power. He did not like the criticism John the Baptist was leveling at him. Divorcing his first wife, marrying his brother's wife, and then having his brother beheaded. You think it's difficult at your Thanksgiving table? Uh, Historian Josephus adds that he thinks that Herod didn't like John the Baptist because he was so popular and feared of rebellion, which the Romans wouldn't like. So what did Herod do? Well, he threw John in prison. It's good to be king. You can do this sort of thing. Authoritarians do it all the time. They consolidate power by eliminating others. Those checks and balances that we Protestant, Reformed Christians like so much. Putin has assassinated a lot of political rivals and critics. A lot. You know, it seems like lately a lot of people have been falling out of windows. You notice that? I mean, just uh, by... Uh, he tried to assassinate Alexei Navalny. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he survived the assassination attempt, and when he came back to Russia... He threw him in prison, and just this week, he added 19 years to Navalny's prison sentence. Authoritarians want absolute power, and they will do what they think they need to do to get it. They will wreck a democracy if they must. Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, have diminished the legitimacy, freedom, and power of the press, because they don't want criticism. And both have diminished the constraining powers of the judicial branch and the legislative branches of government. Political scientists say that that Orban and Erdogan, they're no longer in in genuine democracies. They call them competitive authoritarian governments, meaning that they have elections, but the elections are kind of predetermined. So Herod threw John the Baptist in prison. He did it because he could. John the Baptist was popular, he didn't like what he was saying, and because he was popular, he he probably took a ding for it, you know, like, it went down in the opinion polls when they said, well, how do you like King Herod? Well, not as much as I did before he threw John in prison. Now, Matthew tells us that Herod also wanted to go further, that he wanted to kill him but was afraid about how this would play out in the court of public opinion. Fear of public opinion kept Herod from doing something worse. It's one of those reasons that we reformed Protestant Christians, knowing that everybody's a sinner, like to diffuse power by having lots of different uh, checks and balances. And then Herod had a birthday. He had a birthday. And Herodias' daughter did a little dance. Now, Josephus, the historian, first century historian, as the one who gives us her name, the Bible doesn't tell us her name. Uh, He tells us her name was Salome. And uh, I don't know if her name was Salome or not, but what I do know is it must have been some dance. Must have been some dance. When she finished, Herod promised her that he would give her anything she wanted. It was an extravagant and silly promise. Anything you want. No limits at all. Anything you want. What do you want? I'm going to give it to you. And so after consulting her mom, 
she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, uh, it's kind of a strange request for a late teenage girl. I mean, he probably imagined that she would want a pink chariot or something. I don't know. You know, pink is really in with people these days, I've noticed. Matthew's gospel makes it seem uh, that Herod wanted to kill John the Baptist. Other gospels tell us that Herod recognized that John was a righteous man and occasionally liked to listen to him. I mean, who knows the real story? People are complicated. But Herod didn't kill him and hadn't killed him because it was bad politics. John the Baptist is popular. The people thought he was a prophet. And yet, for whatever reason, whatever, whatever's going on in Herod's mind, Matthew tells us that when she made this request, Herod was grieved. Grieved. But he did it anyway. And Matthew says why he did it. He commanded it out of regard for his oaths and for the guests. Out of his oaths and for the guests. He made a promise without limits and didn't think he could draw the limits now because of the guests. And who were these guests? Well, it's, you're gonna, your guess about the guests is as good as mine, probably. Uh, powerful people and, and, and military leaders. Family, although, you know, what's left of it after he's beheaded his brother. Uh, oligarchs, grifters, hangers-on, people Herod counted on to do his will. And they're watching, and they're asking themselves, is Herod strong or is he weak? Is there a split between his wife and Herod? No doubt they're thinking, what is this going to mean for me? Maybe Herod's grief is the tension that he felt from the politics inside the room and the politics he felt outside the room. Outside the room, he's popular. John the Baptist is popular. People think he's a prophet. Don't want to kill a prophet. Inside the room, politics are different. And Matthew tells us that Herod felt grief. So Herod demanded John's head on a platter, and it was served up. And Salome took it over to her mom. What does this grim story tell us? Well, I think we would be wise to consider what this story teaches about leaders, all leaders, our leaders. You know, back in the 60s, wasn't the 60s? John F. Kennedy wrote that book, Profiles and Courage. I read it as a child. My uncle Clinton gave me the copy of the book for Christmas. Uh, but a whole lot of leaders are not exactly profiles and courage, are they? And this is because they have constituencies. They have people they answer to. They're weaker than the office would suggest. Yes, they hold high office. They can wield a lot of power, but they don't really have the freedom that you would think they might. 
And so, I don't know, they do all kinds of bad stuff. They don't tell the truth. They say one thing, and then they contradict themselves. They don't do the right thing. And when sometimes when they exercise leadership, they get punished. And that's what holds people in line. They don't want to be punished. I get it. And this story sort of tells us to expect this. We would be wise to read this story as a warning for the ways authoritarians punish their critics. Herod locked up John the Baptist. And then it led to something worse, because once he's locked up, once he was under lock and key, he could be killed. You know, authoritarianism is not something that's just other places. It's, it's something we have to struggle with Every democracy and every time has to struggle with it. Our democracy is a treasure and a model for the world. But I've been alarmed myself by the rise in political rhetoric that calls for violence. By the numbers of people who say it's occasionally okay to use violence for political ends. This last week, prominent voices called for the assassination of a politician one said, if I get elected, I'll slit their throats. Another said, kill them all. Our founders said that for democracy to survive, the people must have republican virtues. Honesty. They must love the process of government more than what government will give them. And these excellences of character make it possible for a republic to survive. And the willingness to use rhetoric of violence is a failure of character. It's deeply troubling. There are weak people who are influenced by this talk. Worse, it corrodes political trust. And, and trust, republics don't run without trust. They won't endure without trust. And at this moment of extreme political polarization, we must resist the temptation to treat people who disagree with us as the enemy or to treat politics as a war to be won at any cost. And in the church, the world is our mission field. We're not supposed to hate anybody. We're supposed to be sharing the love of Christ. And things can escalate just as they escalated for John the Baptist. First he was thrown in prison, then he was assassinated. Third, and I think this is the most important point, my third point, this story is the longest story in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, that's not about Jesus. It's not about Jesus, is it? It's about John the Baptist and what happens to John the Baptist. Matthew intends this story to be a foretelling of the crucifixion. And at Jesus' crucifixion, we just see this exact kind of cowardice among the leaders. And as such, I think the most important line in this whole story is there at the very beginning. I'll read it to you again. Herod the king heard reports about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead, 
these powers, the same powers that were in John the Baptist, are at work in him. I think in moments when we are discouraged, we must trust that these powers that were at work in John the Baptist and that were at work in Jesus and that were given to the church at Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. It's at work in the church. And Herod killed John the Baptist, but God's purpose marched on. They crucified Jesus, but God's purpose marched on. And things may sometimes be discouraging, but God's purpose marches on because they cannot kill the powers of God in Jesus. And when you and I do good in Jesus' name, when we continue the ministry of Jesus by refusing the rhetoric of hate and violence, by caring for the least of these, by welcoming people that feel afraid and others shun, by telling the gospel of God's love, by caring for each other, by ordinary works of, I don't know, you, you, you go and you care for your family, or you go to work and you care for your colleagues or your clients, the people you work with and for, by engaging in the ministry of Christ in all of these areas, people hear about this, and maybe they will think that Jesus is risen from the dead, and the powers at work in him are still at work in the world. They will hear reports. They will think Christ is risen. Today we come to this table. And this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to this table, we remember his crucifixion. We remember how he was betrayed, not only uh, by Judas, but by weak leaders who thought that he really shouldn't be crucified, but they, they did it anyway. We remember all of that, but the reason we are at this table is because we know that Christ is risen, that the power at work in him still moves in the world. He is alive, the power of death has been broken, the power of sin has been broken, the power of evil has been destroyed and Christ is victorious. So as we come to this meal, we come, we come to remember Christ, to remember his life, and fed by his, the example of his life, we are then strengthened to go into the world and strengthened by the power of the Spirit, we follow in his footsteps and show his love to others. Come, this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. He invites everyone to come to feed, to know the strength and the love of God, to have communion with the living, risen Christ. Come. These are the gifts of God to the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we remember how on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and wine, and celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. We know that this was the culmination of his whole life, his incarnation where he set aside the glory of God to become human, and then set aside the glory of humanity to become a servant. And how he showed your love to others, eating with sinners, caring for those who were shunned and outcast, touching people who were sick and unclean, 
teaching the good news of your kingdom, that you rule the world despite all we see. Your rule is near. Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness unto you, even unto death on the cross, and how on the cross he forgave those who crucified him and gave his life for the sins of the world. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit upon us so that this bread and this wine may become Christ's body and blood for us. And so that we, as we take communion here at this table, may leave this table strengthened in the power of your Spirit to show your love and to share your life with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, hear us as we pray, as Jesus taught his disciples when they prayed to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.